Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. It's sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day there, it's Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the Australian National University. And with me, as often, as almost always is the case, is Dr. Maria Taflaga, political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm going well. I'm going very well. I, I um, It's been an interesting week, actually, uh, seeing politics uh, uh, play out in a, in a range of ways, as is always the case. But we're going to be talking today about a longer run issue, which is, which, and it might be, it might in some ways seem premature, and that is the um, the risk that the government faces of being a one term government, which raises that whole question, which comes up often in in political coverage and political discussions in Australia, in the reporting and so forth, that. Australia is not a place that has one-term governments. I know, as a as a columnist and journalist, I've I've made this point myself. You know, the last one-term government was was the Scullin government, twenty-nine to thirty-one. Every other federal, we're talking federal governments here that I'm I'm talking about anyway. Uh, every other government gets a gets at least another term. Um, notwithstanding that, a lot of people think that elections are you know fifty-fifty every time and so forth. So. That doesn't imply that what we're saying is that this current government faces, um, you know, loss at the next election inevitably. But neither does it imply, and that's what our guest is going to talk to us about, that uh, that you can't lose at the uh, after just one term. So perhaps I'll bring in our guest now. Bill Brown is director of the Democracy and Accountability Program at the Australia Institute, as distinct from the Australian Studies Institute, from whence I come. Bill, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me. It's terrific. Now, you've actually done some work on this, haven't you? You've looked at this uh, this question about one-term governments. What does your research show? That's right. We've gone back 100 years and looked at state and territory and federal governments uh, to see just how prevalent one-term governments are. And while they're the exception, for sure, uh, it's not true that they're 
impossible by any means. Uh, in fact, we seem to be living in an era where there are unusually many one-term governments. There's been four in the last 10 years. And you have to go back to roughly the Great Depression era to have so many one-term governments in a 10-year period. Yeah, so just to be clear here, we're, we're talking about state and federal governments in this in this category because, as per my original point, we've still only got one since, uh, since the, uh, I guess, since the First World War or shortly after it, it was the Great Depression, which saw off the, um, you know, the Wall Street crash and so forth, which saw off the, uh, the Scullin government in 1931. And we haven't seen federally another government get just one term. But you're talking, you've, you've, you're sort of talking about them federal and state, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's been a few near misses at the federal level, but as you say, just the one that's actually ended up as a one term government. Uh, and yeah, we've extended that analysis to like take a look at the state level as well, where they're somewhat more frequent. Although again, there's been long periods with no one-term government in any particular state. So Bill, I, I'm curious to know, I mean, like one of the reasons why the Scullin government lost in 32 was not only that they were living through the, the biggest economic calamity since the 1890s recession, which was also like worse than the Great Depression for nerds out there that want to know these kinds of things, but that government split, right? Like, you know, and then they had like uh, Jack Lang also, you know, doing crazy stuff in um, New South Wales, you know, potentially refusing to play, pay debts. Like pe- people were seriously worried about, you know, the future of, like, governance in general in Australia. It was petty times. Mm. But what's the sort of – I imagine that is not necessarily always the driving factor um, in some of these subnational state elections. Um, what are the kinds of trends that you have identified that, that might explain those one-term governments? So the first one that's worth noting is this idea of federal drag, uh, that it's harder for a state government to get re-elected if – the same party is in government at the federal level. Either there's a a bit of a transfer of issues, so people blame the state government for the federal government, uh, or they want to balance things out and bring a bit of uh, evenness to kind of government across the country at the different levels. Uh, And that's likely to be a factor in these recent elections as well. There are all coalition governments that only made it one term at a time when the coalition was in power federally. Uh, But of course, federal drag has been an issue for a long time, and this is an unusually large number of one-term governments. I think another factor to consider is the small government agenda adopted by a lot of the coalition governments as they've come in, and in some cases, very ambitious agendas. For example, the Campbell-Newman government, which saw a very substantial swing against it after just one term, and Labor rallying from a handful of seats to getting very close to a majority, enough to win government, had an ambitious privatisation agenda that involved selling off electricity assets, ports, and so on. Um, And the evidence seems to be that the public didn't accept that, uh, and they're reluctant to Uh, see such dramatic changes at the state level. Part of the explanation for that might be that it's the states that provide services like health and education uh, that need to be funded. 
Yeah, well, that's a, a really good point. And I was just thinking that as you were coming to the conclusion of that answer, that the you know it's, it's long been kind of observable in Australian politics that Labor has done better at the state level around the place than at the federal level, and this is often described as voters wanting you know trusting Labor to do things like run schools, hospitals, public transport systems, these sorts of things. You know the services uh, that are sort of directly provided by government, overseen by government, um, and they're looking for you know the the coalition's perceived strengths for overall national leadership, um, economic management, and these sorts of things. That's a that that seems to be consistent with your numbers here, doesn't it? It does seem to be, yeah. Um, and it'd be an interesting follow up to look at some of the federal systems around the world and see if they have a similar trend. Um, I know in Canada, for example, it's the federal government that's more likely to be left wing than right wing. But as a whole, I think, I think that goes some way to explaining this phenomenon that you've got national security and I guess management of the economy as a whole as a federal issue versus that provision of services, mostly at the state level. Maria, we've seen um, in, in elections uh, in recent years, you know, there's often talk about voters voting differentially between the House and the Senate. Um, you know, this idea that uh, I'm prepared to go with one party there, but I'm going to check their power in the Senate. I mean, uh, I'm never entirely convinced by these arguments, whether people are coming to these rationales. It's a bit hard to know. But it sort of sounds from what Bill's saying that that, that that same kind of logic might have been determining the way people vote between state and federal as well, that that if there is a coalition government federally, which for more years than not has been the case, then they they go for the other party in in the state at the state level so they don't have too much uniformity, one party doesn't have too much control over them. Again, you know, notwithstanding what we we're just saying about service delivery and the like. Yeah, okay. So that is very interesting, and I would say a couple of things about this. The first is um, that it is actually interesting to me that in this country we really don't understand why people vote in state elections. Like we don't have the equivalent of the Australian Electoral Study for for state elections, and so a lot of which what is I've, the study that comes out of ANU, which has been running since right. the nineteen seventies, I think. Yeah, since nineteen eighty seven, but there were sorry. previous. Um, like the first one that we can link to goes back to 1969, which we which we do, um, and that is interesting in of itself because so everything that I'm about to sort of say is what I would put in the basket of hypothesis, and I would like some data to test this. But I guess these are the things that sort of come out at me um, when I think about these things. So I, I do think there is a slightly different dynamic that plays out with the Senate. Again, this is something I don't think we truly understand. Then, then with the states, um, I think the reason why people differentiate between the reps, the lower house and the upper chamber is because the the voting system logics of the two uh, election um, the two chambers are actually different one is basically a type of first past the post and the other is um, or a majoritarian system rather and the other one is a proportional system and, and voters have slowly kind of worked out that they can achieve different democratic kind of norms what's potentially going on with like I have a lot of sympathy for this argument that voters actually do understand the difference between the federal and state government mm -hmm. and that they understand that there there are different interests at play 
And, you know, and to a degree, I think the parties understand this too. And there's so much tension in, in politics now at the federal level because voters want the federal government who has all the money. I think voters seem to understand this because the state governments have been blaming the federal government for a lack of money since, you know, Menzies took away their oh sorry was it Menzies no it was it was it was the Curtin government it took away their taxation powers during the Second World War right so I think I think voters know the federal government has the power and the federal government has the problem of being tasked with the requirement to resolve issues in health and education where but they actually don't have the ability to to to, to control these um, systems and what is actually most kind of interesting to me going on what you said, Bill, and I'd be interested in your in your thoughts about this, which is like looking at your, you've got a list here, a lovely list of um, the, the names of these governments and, and when they were kind of, when they lost, right? And so that we, you know, we see a blob in the years leading up to the depression and, and inclusive of the depression. And then um, we see another sort of, um, we see little, little pockets of it all kind of centered around big economic shocks. So we've got the oil crisis and we've got the 1983 um, recession. And then, you know, we've got a huge kind of, we've got a, a growing trend of governments happen, of this happening to governments in the last 10 years. And to me, part of it is like obviously just crisis. And we have a typical economic voting explanation that might drive this, you know, simply that voters punish governments for poor economic performance. And so, you know, Liz Trust should be very, very worried. She's probably going to get a lesson in economic voting very soon. Um, but the other is, prediction called, uh, the other is that, you know, if we also look at these dates, we can kind of see that they're, they're at those, those um, what we call in political science speak, the sort of punctuated equilibrium of a policy cycle. And that's a fancy way of saying like the opportunity space for doing something different is opening. Um, and so this might also be why the federal drag might become a bigger issue because, you know, one party is offering one set of solutions at the federal level, really calling up into relief the alternative strategy of the other government at the subnational level. And if that's involving, you know, making smaller government when a trend towards smaller government has been the norm for a long time, you could see that voters might not want more of the same and definitely not more doubling down like the Campbell Newman government or the uh, Bailey government did. And so they might basically, you know, say, I'm not going to give you another chance. I'm going to get rid of you. So that would be my theory. So whether or not that bears out remains to be seen. Thoughts, Bill? I think, uh, yeah, you've, you've definitely hit on something there and it's Something we've talked about as well at the Australia Institute in terms of the response to COVID, which is that we've seen a distinct strategy from the states emerge and a kind of leadership role played by state premiers and chief ministers involving a more substantial government response. And the federal government, to some extent, left trailing behind that state response. Um, from polling that we did last year, that tracked people's evaluation of state and federal governments, we also saw that ability to, to distinguish between the two of them. Uh, so I think you're right there as well, that voters are pretty sophisticated and are able to, to at least some extent, pinpoint where policy leadership is coming from. Um, another example is climate change, where the states and territories led the federal government 
towards a net zero target. And in fact, the whole country had a net zero target, but via eight different jurisdictions before we arrived at one at the federal level. So there's an opportunity for leadership from the states uh, as a reaction to the unusual times that we find ourselves in. Having reviewed the the one-term government's through history, I think you're right that crisis has often been a contributor. Uh, There's also just some noise in the data. Um, So elections can be very close run things. In the majoritarian system that we have, you can also lose the popular vote, but win a majority of the seats, which complicates any kind of attempt to, to identify the popular will for a government to survive or to come to an end. Um, And in the Great Depression era as well, we've got some of the preliminaries of our party system still being worked out. So the coalition agreement was still new and a number of those governments that collapsed, in some cases collapsed twice, uh, it was Labor and Country Party, what would become the National Party, coalitions falling apart with the formalization of the coalition agreement, something like that is much less likely to happen today. Uh, But I think you're right to point to crisis as as a key reason why many of these governments didn't make it. We'll be back in just a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you from the Australian National University, as I'm sure you already know. We're talking about one-term governments here with Bill Brown and Maria Tafago, and we're covering off, uh, I guess, a number of aspects of this. Um, we would one, one of the things that I'd like to introduce into it is just the whole notion of volatility that has come into, into politics generally. Uh, we Now, this, I guess, touches on some of the themes we've already mentioned in terms of uh, the adherence to new and sometimes quite unpopular policies that you mentioned, Maria, for example, Campbell Newman's privatisations and so forth, things that have become great negatives and which have seen dramatic electoral swings. You know, the, the recovery of Labor in um, in Queensland from, you know, from not being able to field a cricket team uh, to, um, to, to getting a majority in, in one term, I think it was, um, extraordinary. So, but you know, there's a sort of a sense that the kind of tempo of uh, of, of swings in the political climate has increased uh, over recent times, and if that is the case, then I guess we shouldn't be surprised that we're starting to see more one-term governments, and of course, measured against 
the sort of two and a half to three year cycle of the federal government, we've got seven other jurisdictions going to, admittedly, you know, three and four year cycles, but you know, going to elections as well. So there's a lot more of them collectively than there are of of the of the federal one. But uh, Bill, do you think volatility helps explain some of this? Just a more volatile, a more sort of more mercurial electorate and 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 political discourse. I think so. And I think you can see that not just in changes of government, but also changes of leadership. So we've had a a relatively long coalition government at the federal level until this year, but with multiple changes of leadership. And Australia's other enduring government in New South Wales has is onto its fourth premier. So there as well, uh, you've got multiple measures of volatility and a few of them are showing up as quite volatile. I think part of that you'd have to think is the ongoing legacy of the global financial crisis. Uh, And then more recently, COVID has played a role as well. It's helped some governments win whopping majorities, uh, even though they've been in power for a while, but it's also been linked to the troubles that the Marshall government had that kept it to one term. Um, that yeah, as well and that's as a our- really extraordinary case, the Marshall government, because no, no one thought it was a terrible government. I mean, I mean, there were people. Obviously, some voters hated it, and so forth. As is always the case, you know, there are there are there are people who are committed one way or the other in in politics as voters, and that's perfectly reasonable. But objectively speaking, it wasn't a terrible government. It was one that where the premier was to some extent under siege from right-wingers within the South Australian Liberal Party, and the South Australian Liberal Party is famously riven with with this kind of thing. I sp- speak as a former South Australian. Um, but it was nonetheless a, a, a basically competent government in a basically stable uh, economic situation that hit the fence up against a very charismatic and very focused uh, Peter Malinowskis-led Labor Party, it is a state that has a history sort of a, it's, it seems to me like its resting position is basically a Labor state. Um, but nonetheless, a really um, extraordinary achievement for Labor to, to do that. And Labor had done that before. Labor did it with the uh, Tonkin government between, I think it was 79 and 82. Uh, 82, John Bannon won the election there. And then there was a, you know, virtually a dozen years of, of Labor then as well. One term governments aren't, even though, even though that's a, a pretty sort of conservative, like as in stable polity, the South Australian polity, I think its its sort of resting position is essentially as a Labor voting state. So every now and then a, a government runs out of puff, the Libs get one term, and then they get turfed out again. Must be uh, must be a lot of fun. Yeah, and you might be able to draw an analogy to the Bailu Napfine government in yeah. Victoria as well, which again only lasted a term coming in after a long-standing Labor government and in Queensland as well. And and that was a case, the Bailey and Nephew theme government was a case of changing leaders, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that's right. And and so I, changing leaders can be a factor. And we've seen, you, you touched on this, Bill, but we've seen a lot of that in politics in recent years. And I was just thinking, you know, because I've made this, as I said at the start, I've made this observation about one-term governments federally being very rare but the other thing I've often said is that whilst they are rare, and I think you've you've uh, you've made reference to this as well, Bill. Um, whilst they're rare, 
governments facing re-election for the first time are also very vulnerable, and it's quite common for them to actually go backwards. So if we think about Hawke in 84, like he wins in 83 and then goes backwards in 84, Howard wins in 96, goes backwards in 98, in fact loses the popular vote quite decisively but manages to cling on. Labor, of course, wins big in 2007 but then goes backwards in 2010, having changed leader. Uh, and then Abbott wins a thumping majority in 2013 and goes and the coalition goes to a one you know is reduced to a one seat majority having again changed leaders so yeah really uh, if you're in opposition and you've just gone out of power you'd be crazy to be thinking we can't come back here because just because it hasn't happened uh, very often at the federal level it's, it's not much difference between getting within you know like with you know sort of just losing and just winning there's actually a bit of a pattern, as you say, of going backwards uh, at your first bid for re-election. Um, Professor Murray Goot has done a, a breakdown of federal elections since, I think, 1931, perhaps since World War II, and found that that's a bit of a pattern. He argues that it's the margin by which most oppositions win government that is what leads to them having at least two terms not uh, any kind of will of the people to give them a second chance or to give them a proper go of it. Uh, And and so in that case, um, you'd have to look at the narrow margin by which the Albanese government won and wonder if that pattern of of tending to lose vote at the next election is going to be repeated. But there's there's a couple of different ways you could read that, Maria, isn't it? I mean, you could, for example, you could say, one, you have to factor in the fact that a lot of those governments then go on and win a third term, right? So, so it can't just be what they want if they've, if they've gone backwards but then perhaps increased their majority again the third time round. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So I would say that part of that is sort of like an experience story, but there's also like a trend the other way. And if we look at, um, you know, state uh, results, you know, we, we've actually seen this increasing trend of governments like or new governments crashing into majority, minority and then improving their, their result and, and winning them a majority in their, in their own right. And so, you know, I guess another – it to sort of align with Murray Goode's argument, we could sort of say – we could potentially interpret this as there is a bit of a correction. Like if, if you give a government, a new government, a thumping majority – well, they'll disappoint you. Maybe you were really sick of the old government, and so you get a correction. And then perhaps with the in the case of the minority governments that 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 are hungry and work very hard because they're a minority, so they actually have to behave better because they have to actually co- like corral support. Voters like that, um, and so then they they are rewarded, right? But if we were to sort of I guess think of some other reasons as to why this this trend would happen. And to get really sort of political sciencey, you know, like what would be these, like the independent variables, right? The, the things that we, the factors that we think might explain this outcome. Well, I, you know, I, I think there would be, and you touched on this before, Mark, you know, the, the media cycle now is, does seem to be retarding the way that we are able to have positive policy conversations. Like I think this has actually improved since the truly dark days of the minority parliament where everything, every conversation was zero sum and it was simply um, Abbott was either supporting a policy 
or he wasn't, and there was really no ability to discuss why. It wasn't to- a great n- period of nuance, was it? Absolutely not, you know, and 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 I think the way that social media operated at that time meant that every everything was geared towards a negative set of conversations. It was really favorable to oppositions and you know, as with all new forms of technology, politicians work out how to use them and and we are seeing that all there are more positive conversations kind of going on and the integrity movement is actually i think a a good case study of that which i think bill bill could probably talk about in a, in a minute but i'll just give my other two independent variables and the other one is um like uh you know policy uncertainty which i talked about before so i won't i won't go on about that one but the the the, the final one is essentially responsiveness right we have really seen in the last sort of 10 years or so, the political system has really struggled to respond to what voters want. We might call this congruence, right? The, the Like how much what political actors, elites in parliaments are doing and how much that aligns with what voters actually want. And if you look, if you take the last federal government as an example, I think there's actually several policy domains in which they, um, for their own partisan reasons, their own internal party reasons or the, 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 the requirements of a party leader, basically ignored what a public opinion as measured in polls was telling them on on several issues like climate being a really obvious one but gay marriage being another one and and integrity itself right you know i mean the government was at pains to basically say we're not going to be doing any of this because it's either a labor solution or it's not our solution or you know it, it doesn't suit our internal factional needs or we don't think it exists or 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 whatever um and so it doesn't surprise me then that voters who are not being taken um, who are being taken for granted, rather, sorry, would basically realise that they actually have the power to chuck them out. Hmm. So. Yeah. Well, can I add one further one? And that is, uh, and this is also a, a, a variable that's hard to measure, but I suspect exists, and that is that governments that are given thumping majorities behave differently from governments that are given only a very small majority. And now that, that may be quite encouraging for Labor, I remember Mike Rand telling me one time that um, uh, he, he he had told one of his colleagues uh, from a, a, the other states, "You have to who'd won, won a big majority." He said, "Govern like you've got a one-seat majority, because because that's and this probably goes to your point, Mary, about responsiveness, I suppose as well. If you actually sort of imagine yourself to be governing with a very slim majority, then you will be very careful and very diligent and looking to make sure that everything is done properly. If you've got, like Abbott had, I think it was 90 coalition seats to 55 Labor, the whole party basically thinks, oh, we can't lose the next election. And they end up allowing Abbott to go down various sort of ideological cul-de-sacs and and, and, and we saw some particular madness and um and then of course a change of leadership yeah exactly exactly bill i think that's quite right and um you see it in a couple of different ways in some of these one term state and territory governments so uh two of the governments that only made it one term don't have upper houses queensland and the northern territory and I think the moderating influence of an upper house elected with a different franchise, probably with crossbenchers in the balance of power, uh, might well have limited some of the overreach that caused those governments so much problems at the election. It's a very good uh, and, point. 
Yeah. Famously, people attribute the Howard government in 04 to 07 with a similar problem yeah. when they won that narrow That's exactly Senate. what I was thinking when we think about sort of work choices excesses and, and things like that, that Howard was suddenly able to do having won that uh, election against Mark Latham in 2004 so decisively that he finds himself with those that critical 39 votes in the Senate, the 39th vote being a very new Barnaby Joyce in his, in his days in the Senate. Um, and he was able to do things, and those things ended up being big political negatives. They were gifts for Labor. I mean, that was the stuff that Labor was campaigning on in 2007. I'd like to make the this this point. Um, you know, I found it really interesting that the sort of popular narrative, I suppose, about the Howard government was that there was like a good Howard government and a bad Howard government, right? You know, the, the first sort of two terms was a very muscular, reform-oriented Howard government, and then the, the that's last- the, That's the part with the GST. Yes, and, yeah. that's right. The GST, gun control, all yep. of that, uh, you know. And then the, the second sort of Howard government was was from 2001 to 2007, which was, you know, sclerotic and lazy and, you know, they had money coming out of their ears and so they didn't have to make any tough choices. But you know what I find kind of ir- the irony about this is that, well, yeah, they did win that election in 2004 and won a Senate majority and then they proceeded to do a series of incredibly radical ideological reforms and they got absolutely hammered for it. And I actually think it's kind of fascinating that they literally lost on um, basically introducing Producing radical reforms that were rejected, and yet we say they didn't do anything. I, I mean, how has that happened? Yeah, it's a slight contradiction there. Let's just, in the brief few moments we've got left, just go to the integrity question because I think you've been looking at that as well at the Australia Institute Bill. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Morrison government sat on its hands for its entire term, having promised to introduce legislation. Labor has you know, campaigned strongly on this and, uh, of course, the, the as, as you described it, Maria, the sort of integrity agenda was huge at the last election. It was a very critical part of the election of all of those community independents uh, and uh, we've now seen legislation introduced and it seems like the coalition's on board with it. Uh, it's quite a fascinating turnaround and perhaps does say something about Peter Dutton being different from Scott Morrison. I think the... Progress on uh, an integrity commission really shows the hunger that's emerged from the public for more accountability from government. Um, And that's played out over a few years. It's only 2018 that we had agreement from either major party and then both major parties to adopt integrity commissions at all. Um, And then, as you say, the delay from the Morrison government was, uh, I think, a real reason for the success of the community independence in those blue ribbon seats, um, as well as failing to table its proposed integrity commission. The Morrison government was also proposing one that would be much more limited in its powers than what we see is needed from state and territory commissions. Uh, and here as well is an example of states and territories leading the way because, again, we had integrity commissions of one form or another in every state and territory um, and we're only now moving towards getting one at the federal level. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, that, that, that Again, that process of the states being more responsive. Marie, do you think that reflects, I mean, we talked about you know states being deliverers of service and so forth, but it's also true that the state governments are closer to their electors by virtue of that, that delivery of services. And does that result, do you think, in a more responsive 
style of government, just like being closer to your electors, smaller electorates, um, you know, much more intense sort of scrutiny, uh, news coverage in the, in the papers and so forth? Yeah, so if, theoretically I would say that is the case and I think there's lots of ways we could point to that. Obviously, the kinds of issues that electors would end up in their state MP's office as opposed to their federal MP's office, yeah, might be more um, sort of bespoke or personal or relating to their personal kind of lives, smaller electorates, that that makes these things easier to manage. That said, though, I actually don't know if uh, proportionally um, state electorates are smaller. I mean, a lot of state houses are significantly smaller than the, the federal parliament. I think New South Wales is the largest. I think it has around 96 people in the lower house. So maybe maybe New South Welshmen have great representation and, and maybe that isn't so great at the other levels of government. But, you know, I mean, to be cheeky and provocative, we could say that the states um, have led the way on integrity or we could say that the states led the way on corruption and <laughs> that it took a long time for the federal sphere to, to develop these problems and that and that it could be kind of driven off similar things that you've sort of pointed to, Mark, about what makes state politics more responsive, right, and that it's locally driven. Well, that might also make it more vulnerable to corruption or, or it could just be the, the policy I don't, domains. I don't, I don't, yeah. I, look, you're absolutely right, and I don't think there's any doubt that that's the case, but, mm. but that's because the states have had uh, control of planning laws, for example, Indeed. which has been a critical aspect of it. Yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, so there's there's no doubt that, uh, you know, controlling, uh, being responsible for running the police, for running the, uh, the planning system, building codes and all those sorts of things, these are all areas where where corruption is, uh, yeah, is rife. And there had long been this kind of discourse in Canberra shared by both sides that there just wasn't any corruption at the federal level, that it was all at the state level. But I do think on the positive side, the electorates are smaller. In some cases, they're like sort of less than half uh, the size of the federal electorates. And people do care about things like their streets and their public transport systems and their, and their, and their hospitals and so forth. And they care about them in a very visceral way because they have, they touch their lives directly in, exactly. in ways that sort of questions of defence or foreign policy or uh, you know budget deficits, fiscal policy or whatever tend not to. You know they, these are abstracts compared to uh, the other things. So you know, and as Bill's made the point before, it's not just corruption. Things like um, in climate action, for example, where we did get to that kind of national net zero target by virtue of all those jurisdictions being much more responsive to community sentiment on that. And we've seen the same thing in, admittedly, it's their purview, it's their 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 uh, province to do this, but we've seen the same thing with much more progressive positions on uh, euthanasia laws, death with uh, dignity and death and, and these sort of things. So, Yeah, that's absolutely true. I guess you could say that it might be easier to build those kinds of coalitions for those kinds of reforms in, in a smaller set of communities. Yeah, mm. that's absolutely true. And I was being a bit cheeky because it's fun. I'm going to give you the final word, Bill. I think it's true that we uh, are in a period of, of volatility, but there's reassuring signs as well for um, the ability of the public to react and to, to change the course of government. Uh, we've seen people demand and expect more of government during the COVID pandemic, and in some cases, government's risen to the occasion. Not always, um, but there's been a real sense that um, 
governments can govern, they can provide for the public. And I think we're actually in an, an era where we're going to see more of that. We're going to see governments stepping up, doing the things that they do well, uh, and I think that's that's really reassuring. It's a really good uh, uh, point to finish on, actually, because it sort of reminds me that, you know, we've had this, and you, I think you've sort of made reference to this, Maria, as well, this sort of whole period of, of kind of neoliberalism, of the idea of the state withdrawing, of government stepping back, of privatisation and so forth. And then COVID's come along. And people have suddenly realized we need government. We need our hospitals to be run properly. We need our, our social fabric to even function. We need the idea of a social contract of people of the community working together. We're not just units in a market. We're not just consumers or producers or whatever. We're, we're people in a society. And, um, and governments are, are, are absolutely crucial in the process of maintaining that kind of unity and delivering and protecting a high standard of living and, and, and providing for our basic needs. Absolutely. And just because I, I really want to tell the listeners, I, the Australian Political Science Conference um, has happened recently and I was uh, in a fascinating paper which surveyed, uh, oversampled uh, rural and regional uh, Australians and had a large sample of, you know, metropolitan Australians. So, you know, a nationally uh, representative sample with an oversampling of people who live in the country. And one of the questions they asked was, who's in a, in a time of natural disaster, which, which level of government is responsible um, or should be involved, you know, federal, state, local, or the community? And it didn't matter where people lived, more than 90% of Australians, no matter where they live, thought that each role of each level of government should be involved in a natural disaster. And only about 70 or at, at most 75% of people thought that it was really the job of the, the community. And I thought that was like an overwhelming confirmation of an instinct uh, that that you know we've long had about Australians that that we we do love government and we we want government to be involved in our lives and it kind of makes sense i mean you know australia was essentially the equivalent of mars when it was colonized um it was 9 months away one way and I thought you were going to say no one was living there. I was hoping no, that wasn't no, where no, you were no, going. No, 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 no. It takes it would take nine months to get there on a spaceship Got to it. Mars, Got and it. Right. it took nine months on a ship one way. And so, you know, state action and state power has has been the foundation stone of everything that is everything that has built up, you know, white Australia, and and that is like a a mindset that that we have that. I don't think any amount of neoliberal turns are necessarily going to shake. Yeah, and of course we've had the recent experience with the gas crisis through the winter, and and uh, very much the fruits of um, of what happens when you devolve assets and uh, allow market mechanisms to determine, you know, fundamental questions of of Australia's you know property and uh, and, and services. And uh, yes, I think we saw fairly clearly what voters thought of that as well. That's all we've got time for on this Democracy Sausage. Uh, thanks so much, Bill Brown, for coming along and congratulations on your research and keep it up. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We'll do so again. And Maria, thank you again. My pleasure. Always good. And we'll look forward to talking to you again next week on Democracy Sausage, which, as you know, comes from the Australian National University. Bye. Bye for now.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 